Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. Mercury is over on the other side of the couch. <laughs> and we are, um, let's be legendary. That is not the name of our podcast. What's the name of our podcast? Armchair Apocrypha. That's you know right. it. <laughs> I do know it. Let's be Armchair Apocrypha. Armchair Apocrypha. Let's be Armchair Apocrypha. Apocrypha. Let's change our name. <laughs> This is Armchair Apocrypha. This is the show where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Rachel is drinking wine. I am drinking Mother of Dragons, which is one of my birthday presents. Um, A beer for Daenerys, smoked porter and creek ale blend. How is it? Have you tried it? Yeah, it's good. Okay, good. It's, um, It's really, how do I put this? It's really rich. It's got a lot lot of different flavors like oh, all okay, okay. do you want to try it a little sip okay i can tell that it's probably not a beer I yeah to drink. i know you don't like dark beers so i didn't figure you would like it but that would take me a whole night <laughs> I, I, I taste fruitiness in mm-hmm. it though it's not bad no it's good stop licking me will you turn into a dragon when you finish it um, maybe or will I, you be a mother of dragons when you finish Maybe it. if I drink the whole thing. <laughs> Happy Christmas Eve, Eve. <laughs> Happy holidays, Cheers. everybody. Um, we are celebrating together. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom came in from out of town and mm. is up in Lawrenceburg, so I'll be... Stay away from my beer. <laughs> oh my god, we have the most alcoholic dog. Yeah. I don't know what we did to encourage him. I thought we gave him a good life. <laughs> I, I, I think that it, it was his former owners. I'm just going to blame them for everything. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Uh, Mary was teasing us when we went to the bar uh, on my birthday because um, uh, a man walked by and he's got a cane and Mercury is like, Err. and then a woman came in and she was in an electric wheel, wheelchair and Mercury was like, Err. and then uh, I was driving home earlier from uh, picking up dinner and there was a homeless guy and Mercury is like, Err. and I'm like, we really have to talk to you to Mercury about um, ableism yeah. and classism. Yeah. Because this is not rude. It's so rude. It's so rude. We are not raising you that way. No, not at all. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. <clears throat> Yeah, my mom isn't from out of town. She's up in Lawrenceburg, so I'm going to go see her Christmas Day. And yeah. Rachel is taking Mercury to see her family Christmas Day. Yep. It'll be a very chill day. Yeah. I don't plan on getting in my pajamas until <laughs> like 3. Did, I, did you see the pajamas my mom brought me? No. They're so bad. Is that what's in the bag? Yeah, it's... I uh, saw the bag, but I, I knew it wasn't mine, so I decided not to peek through it. It's I a... Saw a it looked like it looks like a blanket on top. It's uh, pajama pants. Oh, you're gonna show me that after this is over. I, I can, yeah. It's uh, Coca Cola Santa Claus. <laughs> oh my um, gosh, I love it. I don't. Okay. <laughs> I'm. I'm. So, I know it's not, so. Yeah. Doesn't sound like something you'd wear. No. Sounds like something I'd wear. <laughs> it does. Yes. Oh. Uh, but it's a cute idea. Right. She was like, "You just have to take a. You just have to take your picture and um." Um, and then make sure that your sister sees it, so uh, she knows that <laughs> you're you're actually wearing it. And I'm like, all right, I'll do that once. See, that's nice though. Yeah, you're doing that. Oh, next episode we record, you got to be in them. <laughs> <laughs> next episode, I'm just gonna be in my robe. <laughs> just gonna do uh drink your mother of dragons beer and be in your robe. Ne- ne- uh, next episode, I'm gonna channel the dude from the Big Lebowski, and I'm gonna oh, be in my bathroom. Whatever, robe. man. Um, my flip flops and drinking a um, what's it called a white Russian? Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> I couldn't even tell you last time I had one of those. In fact, that might be my Halloween costume next year. Oh my gosh, yes, it should. <laughs> and we know who I'm going to be next year. I just got to remember. We do. Rachel has been um, the Belcher children uh, for two years out of three. Is that right? Yeah, I think three years ago you I was Louise. Break. Yeah. And then I was something last year. And then I was Tina this yeah. year, Felcher. And now you've got to be Jean next now year. Now I've got to be Jean. So somebody uh, text at us or uh, tweet at us or email us and be like, hey, Halloween's coming up. Don't forget to be Jean. <laughs> All right. You ready for the episode? I'm so ready to hear what you got to tell me about. Cool. I have another musician and Ooh. another trans woman. Um, All right. So I like the theme we're going with. I'm very on brand. This, uh, 
this week. Um, have you ever heard of Wendy Carlos? I no, probably uh, not. You uh, you have heard some of her music because oh, you've cool. seen some Kubrick films. Um, yes, I have. Uh, I was watching a video essay earlier where um, uh, it was Curio, and Curio was like, just to get all of the negative comments out of the way, I hate Stanley Kubrick, and I think that anybody likes him is a moron. And I was like, that's so timely for tonight. <laughs> Um, Wendy Carlos was born in Pawtucket, Rhode Island in 1939. Uh, she was the first of two children born to working class parents. Her mother played the piano and sang and had an uncle who played the trombone and another who played the trumpet and drums. She began piano lessons at six years of age. Uh, she became aware at, uh, at um, around five or six that she was experiencing gender, uh, gender dysphoria. Okay. Um, she said, I remember being convinced I was a little girl, much preferring long hair and girls' clothes, and not knowing why my parents didn't see it clearly. She wrote her first composition, a trio for clarinet, accordion, and piano, at age 10. Are you serious? I'm serious. Um, she won a scholarship for a home-built computer at the Westinghouse Science Fair, a research-based science competition for high school students. Um... She used that to go to Brown University from 1958 to 1962 and graduated with a degree in music and physics. What? Yep. Music and physics? Music and physics. Okay. Over <laughs> During this time, she taught lessons in electronic music at informal sessions. That's so cool. In 1965, Carlos graduated from Columbia University with a master's degree in music composition, during which she scored several films for students and a filmmaker for UNICEF. Uh, she assisted Leonard Bernstein to present an evening of electronic music at the Philharmonic Hall. Carlos studied with Vladimir Usachevsky and Otto Lunig, two pioneers of electronic music in the 1960s. Okay. During her time at Columbia, Carlos met Robert Moog who you may know as the inventor of the Moog synthesizer. Mm, no. 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 Should um, I? If you're into music, you would. I mean, I like me. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually just talking to my mom the other day about how I want to relearn how to play the piano. Yeah. She's like, have you thought about signing up for piano lessons? And my mind's like, <laughs> what a great idea. I know, right? So I might look into that in a couple months or in a little while. Moog's new electronic keyboard instrument, um, which she um, she convinced Moog to add a touch a touch sensitive device um, in order to give greater musical dynamics, um, among other improvements to his synthesizer. Um, by 1966, Carlos owned a small. <laughs> <Mo> <laughs> God bless. <laughs> By 1966, Carlos owned a small Moog synthesizer, which she used to record sound effects and jingles for television commercials, which earned her anywhere from $100 to $1,000. Nice. In 1967, Carlos befriended Rachel Elkind, a former singer who had a musical theater background and worked as a secretary for Goddard Lieberson, then president of Columbia Records. The two shared a home, studio, and business premises in a brownstone building in the west side of Manhattan in New York City. What year is this? Um, this would be 1967. Okay. Uh, while in college, she went on a date with a girl and felt she said that she felt so jealous of her that she was beside herself. Um, when she moved to New York City in the 1960s, she began learning about transgender issues for the first time. She received counseling from sexologist Harry Benjamin. In early 1968, Carlos began hormone replacement treatments, which altered her appearance. Oh my god. I will stop this. Keep going. Um, <clears throat> after Vladimir Usachevsky suggested to Carlos that she work in a recording studio to support herself, Carlos began working as a recording and mastering engineer at Gotham Recording Studios in New York City. She worked in this position until 1968. She called it a really lovely occupation and found it a useful learning experience, which I think is polite conversation for, eh, it's a job. Yeah. Um, it's a learning experience, it's Andrew. It's a learning experience, quote unquote. Uh, Carlos began her music career with Switched On Bach, an album formed of several pieces by Johann, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach performed on a Moog modular synthesizer. 
Um, the idea came around in 1967 when Carlos asked Elkin to listen to some compositions written by Carlos and musicologist Benjamin Folk- Folkman ten years prior. Get away from my beer. Come lay down. Oh. <laughs> there we go. Um. <laughs> Thank you. Now he's licking your face. He is licking my face. The idea, the idea came around in 1967 when Carlos asked Elkin to listen to, to some composition music uh, written by Carlos and music, musicologist Benjamin Folkman ten years prior at the Electric Sit. Ten years prior at the Electronic Music Center, one of them being Bach's two-part invention in F major, when Elkin took a liking to, uh, which Elkin took a liking to. Plans for an album of several Bach compositions developed from there, leading to a recording contract with Columbia Masterworks through Elkin's uh, contract uh, through Elkin's contacts, a deal that lasted until 1986. So, 1967 to 1986. It's a long ass job. That is. Can you imagine? I can imagine. <laughs> I'm a little bit jealous. Uh, the label had launched an album sales campaign. Uh, named Bach, uh, Bach to Rock, uh, though it had no album of Bach's works in its contemporary context in its catalog. With a $2,500 advance, um, Columbia granted Carlos and Elkin artistic freedom to produce and release the album. Carlos performs with an additional synthesizer played by Folkman and Elkin as producer. Recording was a dragged-out and time-consuming process as the instrument could only be played one note at a time. What? Yep. Then why? Because it had never been done before. Okay. Released in October 1968, Switched On Bach became an unexpected commercial and critical success and helped to draw attention to the synthesizer as a genuine uh, musical instrument. Newsweek dedicated a full-page to Carlos with the caption, Plugging into the Steinway of the Future. Uh, the album peaked at number 10 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and was number one on its classical albums chart from January 1969 to January 1972. 69 and 72? Yep. Shit. Three years. Uh, it is the second classical album to sell over one million copies and was certified gold in 1969 and platinum in 1986 by the Recording Industry Association of America. Carlos performed selections from the album on stage with a synthesizer with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, the first of only two live performances since her days as a student, the other being the Kurzweil Baroque Ensemble for Bach at the Beacon in 1997. In 1970, the album won a Grammy Award for Best Classical Album, Best Classical Performance, Instrument Soloist or Soloists, with or without orchestra, and Best Engineered Classical Recording. I didn't know those were categories. Carlos released a follow-up, The Well-Tempered Synthesizer, with synthesized pieces from multiple composers. Released in November 1969, the album reached uh, number 199 on the Billboard 200 and received two Grammy nominations. The success of both albums allowed Carlos to move into Elkin's more spacious New York uh, City home in 1971. Prior to a live performance of excerpts from Switched on Bach with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, Carlos felt unhappy to appear in public. She cried in her hotel room, and she left wearing fake sideburns, a man's wig, and drew facial hair on her as a way of disguising herself as a man. Uh, Carlos did the same thing when she met Kubrick for an appearance on The Dick Cavett Show in 1970. Commercial success of Switched on Bach allowed Carlos to undergo sex reassignment surgery in May 1972, but she continued to release albums as Walter Carlos throughout the 1970s. Oh, wow. After the the release of Switched on Bach, Carlos was invited to compose a soundtrack of two science fiction films, uh, Marooned in 1961, directed by John Sturgis, and A Clockwork Orange in 1971 by Stanley Kubrick. Never heard of it. Such obscure indie authors, right? Yeah. Well, actually, I've never <laughs> read the book, and I've never seen the movie in its entirety. I love the book. I I've read heard in high good school. things about, yeah, the book. It's difficult to read just because he... Um, yeah, how crazy. Yeah, yeah. the language uh, games, but I do love the book. 
When the directors of Maroon changed their minds about including a soundtrack, Carlos chose to work with Kubrick as she and Elkin were fans of his previous films, adding, we finally wound up talking with someone who had a close connection to Stanley Kubrick's lawyer. We suddenly got an invitation to fly to London. Before Carlos knew about the offer, she read the book and began writing a piece based on it named Time Steps. A soundtrack uh, containing only the film cuts of the score was released as Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange in 1972, combining synthesized and classical music by Henry Purcell, Beethoven, and Gia uh, Goyacino Rossini. Sorry. Yeah. Um, with an early use of the vocoder. The album peaked the Billboard 200 chart at number 146. Later that year, Carlos released an album of music not included in the final score titled Walter Carlos's Clockwork Orange. Oh. Carlos later described the project as a lot of fun, a pleasurable venture. You don't believe that? It still sounds sarcastic to me. Maybe that was just how she (laughs) talked. You don't know her personality. That's possible. It, It... it just sounds a little bit sarcastic. And you know, <laughs> Kubrick was like a monster to work with. Um, I, I don't know much so. about Kubrick, but... Um, well, Kubrick was a monster to work with. I believe most <laughs> men directors of that time were. He uh, he tortured Shelley Duvall. Um, no. He kept her uh, on The Shining. He kept, kept her, her isolated, uh, isolated away from the, the rest of the cast. Um, That's ridiculous. He almost I hate blinded. the whole concept of, like... Um, oh, I have to live like this character to be this yeah. character. No, you're a fucking actor. Yeah. You're paid to do this, to act. Well, this wasn't Shelley Duvall. Oh, I know it's not this her, was, but it's him saying, like, yeah. this is how you need to be yeah. to get the feeling of this person. Um, Shut up. You're not doing a great job directing if that's what you have to do. Right. Sorry, what were you saying? What did, he almost blinded he almost, someone? He almost blinded, um, what's the guy, the guy who stars in The Clockwork Orange? Oh, I, uh, oh, I don't know his name, but I know you're talking about, I mean, yeah. every time I think of Clockwork Orange, I think of the scene where his eyes are being pried open. Let's find out. Malcolm McDowell. Um, he almost blinded Malcolm McDowell with the uh, the things on his eyes. Oh, the scene um, I was literally just talking about. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah, he almost blinded him. Um, Probably didn't give a shit either. There was something else. I think it was Dr. Strangelove. Like, he... Um, he insisted that the uh, the war table in the war room was a green felt table, um, like a poker table, because he wanted to give uh, the um, the uh, um, the sense that they were like playing poker or something. Like that's how war is. These the leaders are just gambling with each other. Um, and you know the thing about Doctor Strangelove is that it's. Um, shot in black and white yeah yeah it's not in color it's he was (laughs) he was a demon to work with um he looks like a demon in person um by 1973 columbia cbs records had received a considerable uh, considerable number of requests for carlos to produce another album of synthesized (laughs) classical music she agreed to the request opting to produce a sequel to switched on bach uh, which began with her and Elkin seeking compositions that were most suitable for the synthesizer. The two pick selections from Suite Number no. 2 and B minor, two-part inventions in A minor and major, Suite from Notebook for Anna Magdalena Bach, uh, and Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5 in D major. The latter features a Yamaha E5 lectone organ for certain pa- passages, as a reliable polyphonic keyboard uh, had not been developed. The result, Switched on Bach 2, was released in 1973 and sold over 70,000 copies in the U.S. during its first five weeks of its release. 75,000? Seven, uh, sold over 70,000. Carlos reunited with Kubrick to compose the score for a psychological horror film, The Shining, which we again were just talking about. Yep. Uh, before I do filming, like that film. Yeah. Um, before filming began, Carlos and Elkin read the book, as per Kubrick's suggestion, for musical inspiration. Carlos recorded a considerable amount of music, but Kubrick ended up uh, using existing music by several avant-garde composers he had used as guide tracks in the, uh, in the final version. The Shining, original motion picture soundtrack released in 1980 on Warner Brothers Records, features two tracks credited to Carlos and Elkin, the main title theme and Rocky Mountains, uh, the former, a reinterpretation of Dias Irae section of the Symphonie Fantastique by Hector Berlioz. 
Uh, some of Carlos' music had some legal issues regarding its release, but much of it was made available in 2005 as part of her two-volume compilation album, Rediscovering Lost Scores. Mm-hmm. Carlos kept her gender identity secret until she agreed to a series of interviews with Arthur Bell between uh, December 1978 and January 1979 for the May 1979 issue of Playboy magazine. Oh, snap. Playboy. She chose Playboy as it People has... People really do read it for the articles, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, talk to Mr. J. Um, That's right. <laughs> I will not talk about that. <laughs> she chose Playboy as it has, quote, always been concerned with liberation, and I was anxious to liberate myself. Good for her. In 1985, Carlos spoke... You are so needy. <laughs> In 1985, Carlos spoke about the reaction to her transition. The public turned out to be amazingly tolerant, or, if you wish, indifferent. There had never been any need of uh, the shroud to have taken place. It had proven a monstrous waste of years of my life. Ugh. But imagine the relief, though. Yeah. With work on The Shining complete, Elkin ended her long-time collaboration. Come sit down. Come sit down. (laughs) Sit. Sit. (laughs) With work on The Shining complete, Elkin ended her longtime collaboration with Carlos when she moved to France with her husband in 1980. Snap! Happy endings, please (laughs) tell me. That's not really a happy ending. I think that's probably a bittersweet ending. Oh, I thought it was like mutual, like, okay, we're good. Maybe. I mean, your best friend is like moving away. Uh, to be with be her right. husband. Oh, I'm so sorry. I took it the other way around. That she got married and moved. No. Carlos is still in New York City. Oh, damn it. I miss. I misheard you. Wendy is in um, New York City. Uh, Rachel Elkind is in France with her oh, husband. Oh, okay. Sorry. I don't know why I heard it the other way around. But, okay, fine. <laughs> Whatever. Elkin ended her longtime collaboration with Carlos when she moved to France with her husband in 1980. Carlos remained in New York City, sharing a converted loft in Greenwich Village with her new business partner, Anne-Marie Franklin, which is maybe the the happy beginning, (laughs) um, which housed her new uh, remodeled studio, which was enclosed in a Faraday cage to shield the equipment from white noise and outside interference from radio and television signals. This is where the physics of her degree comes in. Yes. Carlos' first project with Franklin began around 1980 when the Walt Disney Company, who I'm guessing is like a small town mom and pop shop. Yeah, I've never heard of it. It must be local for New York. Uh, The Walt Disney Company asked her to feature the soundtrack to its science fiction feature, Tron, 1980. No way! The Tron movie? That makes perfect sense, actually, for like synthesizing noise or sound. Excuse me, Jesus. Carlos agreed, but was not interested in composing solely electronic music, as she wished to incorporate an orchestra with her musical ideas. She recalled her demand. Sorry. She recalled their demands were tightly specific. There wasn't a lot of elbow room, and that made it fun. Uh, the score incorporated Carlos's analog and digital synthesizers with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, the UCLA Chorus, and the Royal Albert Hall organ. Tron, original motion picture soundtrack, was released in 1982 and reached number 135 on the Billboard 200. Cool. Carlos intended to release her scores on her own album, but Columbia CBS showed a lack of interest in the prospect. In 1988, CBS Records asked Carlos to collaborate with uh, comical musician Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, Weird Al! To uh, release a parody of Peter and the Wolf by Sergei Prokofiev. Prokofiev. <clears throat> God, these vowels are okay. just... The vowels are just fucking with me. Um, Carlos agreed to the project as she felt it presented a chance to let your sense of humor out of the cage. Yankovic adapted and narrated its story while Carlos rearranged the music with a MIDI orchestra, her first venture using the digital interface. Do you know what MIDIs are? MIDIs? MIDI. No. Uh, so MIDIs are just like short sound files that you can program into a computer and then just like arrange them where you want to and then oh. it'll play through the MIDI file. Okay, I see what you're saying. Like yeah. one after the other. Yeah. Uh, her first venture using the digital interface. The album's second side also contains a humorous adaptation of The Carnival of Animals by Camille Saint-Saëns, 
uh, titled The Carnival of Animals Part Two, <laughs> with Yankovic providing funny poems for each of the featured animals in the style of poet Ogden Nash, who did similar for the original. To mark the 25th uh, anniversary of Switched On Bach, Carlos re-recorded the album with her... What just happened? Uh-oh. To mark the 25th anniversary of Switched On okay. Bach, Carlos re-recorded the album with her set of digital instruments and recording techniques. For some reason, it just scrolled up. And I was oh. like, I don't, I don't understand why you Rude. did that. Um... Switched on Bach 2000 took roughly one and a half years to produce. Carlos estimated around 3,000 hours were invested in the project, which involved using several uh, digital audio workstation software packages, including sound tools and pro tools. A Moog synthesizer is only used once on the record. What? Yep. The rest is performed on 13 modern synthesizers. Ugh. The album also marked her first venture into mixing in Dolby surround sound. Boing, boing. That's what I was thinking. Like, Dolby <laughs> sound, they go boom, the boom at the movie theater. Yeah. I love Wong. it. Yeah. Uh, Carlos wrote the soundtrack to the British film Brand New World in 1998, also known as Woundings, directed by Roberta Henley and based on a play by Jeff Noon. Car- Carlos explained the style of her music. I was given fairly large carte blanche to do some horrific things and also some inside psyche mood paintings, and that's what the film became. I've never seen it, but it sounds good. Yeah, it sounds interesting. Uh, In 1998, Carlos sued the songwriter-artist Momus for $22 million for his song Walter Carlos. Oh. Yes, it's so bad. Um, The song uh, from the album The Little Red Songbook, released that year, postulated that the post-sexual reassignment surgery Wendy could travel back in time to marry her pre-surgery self, Walter. What? It's so bad. Did you listen to it? I have not listened to it. I don't want to give that guy views. Oh, hell no. Um, The case was settled out of court, with Momus agreeing to remove the song from subsequent editions of the CD and owing $30,000 in legal fees. In 2005, the two-volume set Rediscovering Lost Scores was released, featuring previously out-of-print material, including the unreleased soundtrack of Woundings and music recorded for Clockwork Orange, The Shining, and Tron that was not used in the films. Um, Wendy Carlos is a little bit unique out of most of the stories that I do because she's still alive and is still working as far as I know. Um, so, Wendy, if you're out there, uh, congratulations. You've lived a great life. Seriously. And we are in awe. Yeah. Here we are, just sitting <laughs> on a couch in a podcast, like everyone else. Not making music. <laughs> Not making music. That's really cool. Yeah. That's really, that's great. Thank you. Uh, so what do you have for me today? Mine's a little different. Okay. Mine's about this lady named Grace O'Malley. Grace O'Malley. Yep, so we're, we're going to Ireland. Literally. Yeah. And a couple hundred years ago. Sounds very Irish. I know, doesn't it? Okay, so I love this. I basically took from this article, mm-hmm. for the most part, because it did just such a fantastic job. So, they opened up the article saying, While Mary, Queen of Scots, succumbed to Queen Elizabeth I and the Executioner's Axe, Grace O'Malley was another queen, quote-unquote, who defied the English monarch for almost 40 years by plundering English ships and fiercely repelling the forces that tried to take her family's land. Some call her a pirate. Nice. Yeah, we're going there. <laughs> Is this our second pirate of the series? I think so, because yours, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did like Ching Shi, you did, yeah. uh, you're doing Molly O'Malley. Grace O'Malley. Grace O'Malley. O'Malley. Molly also very Irish. Yes. So, Grace O'Malley was born around 1530. To Owen O'Malley, the chieftain of a clan that ruled the area around Clue Bay on the west coast of Ireland for more than 300 years. Wow. Can you do an Irish accent? Uh, a little bit. Okay, good. I'm, I'm not going to do it now. Okay. You haven't had enough of your I, mother dragons? I have not had enough of my mother <laughs> dragons to do an Irish accent. <laughs> Okay, I can't even try, so we're not even going to go there. When I was in uh, Madrid, uh, my friend Will dragged me out to an Irish bar in Madrid uh, with mm-hmm. uh, all of the employees were Irish. And um, as we were like talking throughout the night, I would gradually take on more and more of an Irish accent. Oh my gosh, I have <laughs> It was just because like, I was hearing these <laughs> accents and just mimicking them unintentionally. That's awesome, though. So during that time... 
this 300 years. They built wealth from both piracy and legitimate trade with France and Spain. When Grace's father died, um, she became the queen of her clan, because I think she was the only child. Mm -hmm. And, oh no, she wasn't. I think she was the oldest. Um, Because I remember she has brothers. Um, It's very progressive of them. It actually is, yes. She became the queen of her clan, and she knew how to navigate the local political world of clans and chieftains by forging strategic alliances. Um, So one of the things they did was that if you came to their, like, shore land area they taxed all those who fished off their coast which included fishermen from as far away as england um local folklore going back a little bit sorry a little bit this is out of order local folklore had it that as a young girl grace wished to go on a trading expedition to spain with her father upon being told she could not because her hair was too long it would catch in the ship's rope she cut off most of her hair to embarrass her father into taking her there and taking her. Um, this earned her the nickname Grain Maholle, an Irish pronunciation um, for Maole, meaning bald or having cropped hair. What is it? I don't know. Grain, grain, grain whale. Grain whale. Grain whale. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> um... <laughs> So the ships that she inherited from her father were also like used for piracy and everything like that. Um, back to being taxing the people. So if people refused to like pay the taxes when they landed there yeah. or like try to get passage through, it would result in violence or death. And you uh, went, went across paths with Grace O'Malley. I'm sure I wouldn't. No. <laughs> I mean, is she single? Like, uh, no, nope, maybe I would. She's not. She's not. We'll get uh, to that. No, I wouldn't. Um, at the time, women were often used. That was actually quite timely. <laughs> were often used as a tool to create alliances through marriage that would make the men involved more powerful. But Grace's story turns this notion on its head. She married twice, but each time it was her power that increased. Nice. Yep. Twist. <laughs> Um, so her first marriage was in 1546 at the ripe old age of 16, um, to an O'Flattery, so another very Irish name. O'Flattery. Um, which was a good political match for both of them. You cannot drink my beer, puppy. So during this marriage, she had three children. Owen, the eldest child known to be kind and forgiving. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it said that there's this guy, when we'll get to this guy, Sir Richard Bingham tricked him, and as a result, Owen was murdered, and Bingham and his troops took o- over Owen's castle. Jesus. Yeah, I know. It's medieval times, man. Um, then we have Maeve, said to me, much like her mother, she married someone um, with whom she had several children, and all it says is that her... Grace and her daughter were supposedly very close. Um, then we had Murdoch. <laughs> Murdoch. Murcod. 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 Um, was said to take after his father as he enjoyed warfare. He often beat his sister Maeve and refused to listen to his mother because of her gender. Ugh. Many sources report that he betrayed his family and joined forces with Sir Richard Bingham, who, as a, you know, killed his brother mm-hmm. after his brother was murdered. And then when Grace heard of this, she swore she would never speak to him again for the rest of her life, though she would often insult him. That seems like a fair reaction. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. And at 1565, so how long were they married? For almost 19 years. For a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, Her husband was killed in an ambush while hunting in the hills. Um, So... Grace returned to her own lands and established her principal residence on Clare Island. Clare. Yes. C-L-A-R-E. Um, so, upon the death of her first husband in 1554, she inherited his fighting ships and castle. Oh, just kidding. They were only married for a few years. Um, at the age of just 23. I think I wrote down a number wrong. But anyways. It's fine. Yeah. It's Hashtag weird. armchair apocrypha. Hashtag armchair apocrypha. Um, it's fine. Apparently, she allegedly took a shipwrecked sailor as her lover. Ooh. The affair only lasted briefly as he was killed by other rival clans. That's some seeking vengeance. 
Grace attacked these clans um, and killed her lover's murderers on a different island. That is some romance adventure. Yes. Uh, not bullshit. Mm-hmm. Her attack on Duna, D-O-O-N-A. What is it? Duna. Yeah, Duna. On Duna Castle under the nickname Dark Lady of Duna. That was my Duna. really bad Irish accent, which wasn't one. <laughs> so... <laughs> In 1566, Grace married a second time, this time to Iron Richard Bork. Well, his name was Richard, but they called him Iron Richard. Is it B-Y or uh, B-J? B-O-U-R-K-E. I think that might be Burke. Burke. We'll go with Burke. I like that. That's easier. And his nickname derives from his ironworks at the Burr's Hool place of his principal castle and residence they had one child in 1567 she divorced her second husband after just one year of marriage took control of his castle and somehow still maintained his loyalty as an ally wow at the height of her power she had hundreds of men's and numerous ships at her disposal what did you i didn't have any ships when i was 23 did you i did not have any ships when i was 23 i also didn't have an army did you i did not have an army at 23 what about 24? Uh, I had a small one. Okay, okay. You've got, to, you've got to kind of build your yeah, way Yeah, you got to build your you way know, up. You've got to collect people, <laughs> recruit people, exactly. bring them into the fold. Mm-hmm. Still not satisfied, satisfied with her revenge for her lover, former lover. Grace then sailed for Ballycroy and attacked the garrison at Duna Castle. Yep, fucking again. Overpowering the defenders and taking the castle for her fucking self. <laughs> She's just got it in for doing a castle. Yeah, her attack against them was not the first time she interrupted someone at their prayers, apparently. Um, legend tells of another lord who stole property from her. I don't know how you steal property, but let's not go there. And from her and fled to a church for sanctuary. She was determined to wait out the thief, maintaining that he could starve or surrender. The thief dug a tunnel and escaped, though, however. Wow. And the hermit who took care of the church broke his vow of silence to scold her for attempting to harm someone who had sought sanctuary, but apparently her reply was not recorded, so boo on that. Um, Stories of her courage and seafaring skill have been passed down through Irish poems and folklore. In one account, a Turkish corsair, 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 thank you, is said to have attacked her ship a day after she gave birth to her son, Theobald. As the Turks boarded, she jumped out of bed and stormed onto the deck armed with two blunderbusses. The bewildered Turks stopped fighting and she yelled, take this load from unconsecrated hands before firing her weapons and killing their officers. The rest of the Turks were dismayed by the loss of their officers and Grace easily captured their ship. That is one hell of a line. I know! But her most remarkable story, and the one that she's most remembered for, began when Elizabeth I, Queen Elizabeth I, came to power in 1558. Elizabeth wanted to increase control in Ireland, and thus came to blows with Grace O'Malley. Do you think she likes being controlled? Especially by the British people? She seems very uh, uh, anarcho-libertarian in that regard. Uh, so the O'Malley clan was one of the few clans that resisted Elizabeth while English ships fell foul of um, O'Malley's pirating prowess, as the number numerous bays along the Irish coastline made it perfect for launching surprise attacks against the unsuspecting English. Also, they their clans lived there for hundreds of years. They probably know every nook and cranny yeah. and things. So field advantage. By March 1574, the English had had enough. They sent in ships and an army of men to attack Grace's home base at Rockfleet Castle. Uh, but within weeks, she had repelled them into a humiliating retreat. <laughs> humiliating. <clears throat> However, Grace O'Malley met her match, and we talked about him not too long ago, in Sir Richard Bingham. Doesn't he just sound like a villain? Yes, he does. Did he bite you? He just bit my nipple. Oh, don't do that. Weirdo. I'm trying to talk about an Irish folklore awesome pirate lady. Hold yourself. Um, so and so she met her match in Sir Richard Bingham 
after he was appointed to the new governor of the area. Um, Bingham's brother... Bingham's... Sir Richard's brother killed (laughs) Grace's oldest son while also they imprisoned her youngest. So they actually beat her because you know every once in a while someone they gotta lose one yes lucky yeah then he so he took control of her strong her rock fleet castle and confiscated her lands cattle and fleet he had he was the one that brought grace o'malley to her knees is what they say that's a bad turn of phrase yeah seemingly with no way out grace did something remarkable what'd she do yeah i will tell you in spring of 1593, she swapped seafaring tactics for her skill in diplomacy by asking to see Queen Elizabeth I herself. Despite Richard's protests, because he's a dick face, yeah. Elizabeth met with Elizabeth decided to meet with Grace O'Malley at the Palace of Greenwich in the summer of 1593. Greenwich. I know, but I like Greenwich. Um... <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> Accounts of the meeting vary wildly, with some saying that Grace refused to bow, brought a dagger with her, and refused Elizabeth's offer to give her the title of Countess because equals can confer titles upon each other. Snap. <laughs> um, apparently, Elizabeth courtiers, court, courtiers, courtier, yeah, were said to be very upset and worried. Um, with the finding of the dagger, but Grace informed the queen that she carried it for her own safety. Some also reported that Grace sneezed and was given a lace-edged handkerchief from a noblewoman. She apparently blew her nose into the handkerchief and then threw the piece of cloth into a nearby fireplace, much to the shock of the court. Grace informed Elizabeth in her court that in Ireland, a used handkerchief was considered dirty and was destroyed. Their discussion was carried out allegedly in Latin, as Grace spoke no English and Elizabeth spoke no Irish. Hmm. Which I showed some like Irish like phrases, and I was like, I yeah, yeah. I was like, what do you mean Irish? But obviously, real Irish, Gaelic. What, Gaelic. Um, <clears throat> either way, what seems clear is that Grace pleaded her case. And that Elizabeth ordered the release of Grace's son, that was captive, uh-huh. and the return of her lands in exchange for her and help for her help in fighting England's enemies abroad. Um, Elizabeth, like, f- wait, shoot, where am I? Okay. Furthermore, um, Elizabeth was to remove Sir Richard from his position in Ireland, and Grace was to stop supporting the Irish Lord's rebellions just to help out with her enemies. The meeting seemed to have done some good for he was removed from service, but several of Grace's other demands, including the return of the cattle and land that they had stolen from her, remained unmet. And within a rather short period of time, although they don't tell me, Elizabeth sent Sir Richard Bingham back to Ireland. Um, Upon Sir Richard's return, Grace realized that the meeting with Elizabeth had been useless and went back to supporting Irish insurgents <laughs> during the Nine Years' War. <laughs> Unfortunately, it kind of just ends there. It says she most likely died at Rockfleet Castle around 1603. She was in her 70s. And they all, all the articles I read were just like, what's so cool is that her... Not cool, that's not what they said, but interestingly enough, that her and uh, Queen Elizabeth I... Uh, died in the same year. You can say it's cool. It's cool. You're not a. You're not an academic. You Though can say it's, cool. it's the place of her death and like the exact year are disputed, but yeah. everyone comes to the conclusion that they died the same year. Hmm. Um. So that's the fucking English, or English Irish, uh, Irish pirate, Irish pirate Grace O'Malley. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I wish I had more on her. But I, I read her and I was like, oh, she seems very fascinating. Slaunch to... Yes. Cheers. Grace O'Malley. Grace O'Malley. What do, what do Irish drink? Just beer? Guinness? They drink beer. Um, dark beers uh, were invented by Irish monks, so um, a lot of them drink dark beers. Um, uh, what else? Uh... Jameson is the whiskey company over oh, there. Oh yeah, uh, Jameson and Sons. 
Um, there's also just like a bunch of microbreweries. Like when I was over in Dublin, um, there was a microbrewery that I basically spent the the last night I was there in before going back to the the airport. Nice. Um, a whole bunch of bars, a whole bunch of uh, beers and whiskeys and stuff. All right, good to know. Yeah. So. Wasn't your mom just there? Yep, yeah. <laughs> she was. <laughs> she was in Dublin. What did she drink? Um, beer. Beer. <laughs> I think she went to, like, a tasting thing. She didn't go to the Guinness Factory, but she went to, like, a beer place where you, like, try these flights of beer and yeah. a tour and stuff. The Guinness Factory tour is really good if you ever get a chance to go on it, but I know you don't like Guinness, so... I don't, but I... I'm always interested in learning about the process of, like, how it all works, so. Also, fun fact, um, the Dublin's Writers Museum is um, sponsored by Jameson Whiskey. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. The more you drink, the better you write. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> That was my philosophy all through undergrad. <laughs> I'm joking if you're one of my old professors listening to this. Um, wink. I'm just joking. <laughs> wink, wink. Sorry, Dr. Robbins. <laughs> Why are you licking me? Stop licking me. I do not want your kisses right now. I know. But he loves you so. I know. Well, those are good ones. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to get out of here. Yeah. Um, happy holidays. Mm -hmm. Uh, we love you. Thank you all for, um, thank you all for listening. We have almost 2,000, uh, unique listens. So, uh, I wish we had more. Um, if you really enjoy the show, tell your friends, uh, share our episodes. Um, but I'm really happy with what we've built so far. Me too. Another cheers. (laughs) Cheers to the listeners. Cheers. Uh, uh, find it, you can find us on Facebook at Absinthe Activism Arts. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Absinthe Act Arts, but we've never used it. One so, day. I say that every uh, time. <laughs> um, you can... Uh, oh, where else? Um, Facebook. I just said Facebook. Oh, just kidding. I'm listening. <laughs> uh, you can find pictures of Mercury on my Instagram yes. at AWMWrites. Love it. Um, if you are interested in becoming a Patreon, uh, you can find us on Patreon at Absinthe Activism Arts. Um, you can find us, uh, you can find our website at absintheactivismarts.wordpress.com. I think we're going to like need to upgrade um, once I start working again. We should get a, like, staple domain name. Oh, yeah. For what, though? For the website. Uh, oh, okay. Not a WordPress blog. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, yeah. I agree. Um, you can Sorry. find us... You can currently find our website at absintheactivismarts.wordpress.com. Uh, check out my writing. Uh, as always, buy my books. Uh, you can check out artwork from Katie White. Um, you can f- check out music um from joshua paul brooks and chet osman um i think that's all sounds good to me yeah next time we record might be in the new year yeah for us yeah it'll be uh it'll be 2019 yeah (laughs) um vision board (laughs) 2019 we need to we need to make a new logo and all of that stuff yeah we can work on that yeah um yeah so happy holidays happy new years um we'll see you guys in the new year uh we love you and Mm -hmm. uh have a great week